The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the Law Offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue Baloo, looking good. I know it was your birthday. How was it? It was uh, It was quiet, but it was yeah. uh, It was fun. It was a little intimate. It's my sister and I. Uh, had, I ordered out uh, Thai food, which was great. Great food here in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And especially in the, in the neighborhood that she lives in. It's a big, big foodie area, the, the inner sunset. Um, yeah, and I got a bottle of wine and... Uh, had some birthday cupcakes, uh, compliments of my niece. Very nice. And uh, watched some TV, and it was, uh, yeah, it was fun. Good, good. Well, I'm going to throw you something. Uh, Clark Gregg is going to join us coming up mm-hmm. here. Great actor, great director. Florida Man is his new limited series. It's airing on Netflix. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the Mets, I've got a Mets situation for you. Okay. So Max Scherzer was pitching today for the Mets at Dodger Stadium against the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And in about the fourth inning, the umpire came to him and said, you got something in your glove. You've got an illegal substance in your glove. You got to go get another glove for the next inning. So he comes out with another glove and the umpire looks at it again, illegal substance on the glove. So he was ejected from the game. So now my question to you is, can you really trust Max Scherzer anymore as a Mets fan. Well, uh, you know, I didn't know about it because my mind is on other things. Yeah. <laughs> I've been here, although I have been, I, you know, I've been following the games. I just didn't have a chance to follow today's game. Um, that is very, very disturbing. And the fact that it was back to back gloves. Yes. Is, uh, is, is more suspect. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I'd like to see what his third glove looks like. Right. Well, as we look back at Max Scherzer's career, and he's got a Hall of Fame level career, doesn't it make you wonder, well, how much was he benefiting by whatever stuff he had in his glove for all these years? And is it a case of like once a cheater, always a cheater? Um, I don't know if once a cheater, always a cheater, because I think that maybe after you're caught, you could maybe change what you're doing because because if he's if he's on the the cheating radar at this point and he's going to be it's going to be suspicious with him sure so he would be extremely foolish to continue what he's allegedly doing and what did did they find what uh, what did they find you know the stories by the time we put out this podcast there'll be a lot more details about it i just knew it was perfect for you because i want to I want to create a cheater scale with you right now. Mm -hmm. So you've got like uh, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds, and steroids. You've got Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa in Houston and banging on trash cans and all the stuff that they did. You've got Max Scherzer with a substance in his glove. Where do these things stack in the cheating scale? I mean, 
I mean, I, I think that they, they are pretty high because, you know, every game counts. Yes. And, you know, one game could make or break whether, you know, you're in the playoffs or not. Right, right. Or home field advantage. Sure. So I think cheating is cheating. Cheating yeah. is bad, bad, no matter what time in the season it is. And, uh, you know, as far as the Astros, I mean, I, I'm sure as a Dodgers fan, um, you, you probably hate oh, the I Astros, hate the fucking and, Astros and will yeah. always hate them. Now, yep. do you think that the Astros are still cheating? You know, I think they're probably, you know, there's been such a crackdown on that stuff. And I don't think we'll ever see like the banging on trash cans or like Jose Altuve wearing a little button on his chest to tell him what pitches come all that. I don't think that that sophisticated level of cheating exists, but I'll tell you what, if I had a hall of fame vote, I don't care how many, how many uh, hits Jose Altuve has in his career. I would hold this against him and he would never be on my hall of fame ballot. Same thing with McGuire and Sosa and bonds. Bonds. If I was a voter would not put them on the, on the ballot. Scherzer now it's, it's a different level but it does make me wonder if all of his success over the years may be partly due to cleverly using illegal substances. And it makes me wonder about his career and what it might have been like without that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember years ago when the Mets uh, in 86, when Mike Scott was scuffing the ball. Oh, he was scuffing the baseball for sure. And as a Mets fan, I mean, we were all flipping out because we thought that that the Mets were going to have to face him in a game seven. Yeah. And, you know, there was nothing they can do against this guy. And there was nothing, nobody could figure out how he was doing it either. Like they all knew he was scuffing the baseball, but they couldn't figure out how. I always thought like belt buckle was maybe Mm -hmm. one way to do it, but to get that little nick in the baseball, to get it that extra bit of spin, which is exactly what Scherzer's apparently doing with that, get that extra bit of spin. Everybody cares about the spin rate now. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the way it plays out. Are you feeling generally optimistic about the Mets or generally pessimistic about the Mets? I've, I've actually, from what I've seen so far, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about yeah, the as Mets. As a Mets fan, you have to be cautiously optimistic. Yes. That cautious always has to be in the sentence. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I like what I've, what I, like I said, I like what I've seen so far. I mean, um, even Vogelbach, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's getting hits. He's getting on base. Yeah. Um, I was kind of disappointed that they, that they included him on the roster this season. Right, um, right. And and then with Diaz out, which was, you know, a, a really tough break. Yeah, um, Edwin Diaz, who tore his uh, ACL in the World Baseball Classic, celebrating, not pitching, but celebrating. Right. Um, but so far, um, I, you know, they're, they're holding their own. Yeah, so. they're holding their own. Good. Well, and, I and hope you have a good year, Sue. Yeah, well, You've I hope it. you... Oh, shucks. Thanks. And what about the Dodgers? What do you think about the Dodgers? I think it is a very ordinary baseball team. I was saying this on the radio today. They have no Mm -hmm. depth. In fact, they're talking about playing Mookie Betts at shortstop, which he hasn't done since 2013 in the minor leagues, but they've got nobody, no shortstop depth. Um, they've They've got major problems. The bullpen is awful. Uh, the closer situation unsettled, the depth issue really showing up. I mean, I'm hoping that the Dodgers can get to 90, 91, 92 wins and get into the playoffs. And then who knows, but they've set their sights on getting Shohei Otani next year. That's why they're not spending any money, uh, this year in terms of building depth on the roster. So, I mean, I hate to see, I, 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 I'm optimistic that 
Andrew Friedman and the Dodgers are going to figure it out. I'm optimistic. He's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I think he'll save the Dodgers season somehow, somehow. So, um, um, so, sh- sh- uh, so Otani. Okay. So if they, if they go after Otani, what would they, I mean, they're going to have to give a hell of a lot for Otani. It starts with a six, Sue, $600 yeah. million, dollars, probably 60 million a year. Wow. That's amazing. But right. worth it. Oh, the guy is insane. He's insane. And it's box office. Can you right. imagine right. the night Shohei Otani pitches at Dodger Stadium? It will be absolutely electric. So I hope it works out. That's the master plan. So I hope we have a decent season, get into the playoffs. You never know this year. Next year, Otani. That's the optimistic take on the Dodgers. You know, I am so glad that I grew up when I did at a, and, and became a baseball fan at the time that I did, uh, you know, as, as a young girl. Yeah. Uh, because I never worried about players that I love leaving. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's you right. Know? That was all pre-Kurt Flood. Right. Pre-free right. agency. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I tell, you, I tell you what, let's, let's do this here. Okay. Let's do this. Uh, our guest today is literally one of the hardest working guys in Hollywood. He's done everything. He's done comedy with shows like The New Adventures of Old Christine. He's done drama on shows like West Wing. He's part of the MCU as Agent Phil Coulson from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and his new show is Florida Man on Netflix. He stars and directs the final two episodes. Clark Gregg joins us. Clark, thank you so much for doing this. Uh Big fan. Pleasure to be here. Cool. So uh, we're definitely going to talk about Florida, man. We both watched it and absolutely love it. I, I kind of want to throw you some stuff that maybe that that I love that uh, that you did and you've had such a an unbelievable career. Um, you were on West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows. So I've gotten to interview Aaron Sorkin, who's like one of the great living writers for TV and film. And we always ask people like when you're doing something, do you get to improv? I would imagine improv doesn't happen on the set of the West wing. Am I right? Uh, I mean, I, not from anyone who wants to be in the next episode, (laughs) (laughs) but also I, I mean, it would be entertaining to me. I feel like I've been around when I've worked with them a number of times over many, many years and I, I feel like I've been around when people kind of were like, well, what if I just say this? <laughs> I've never heard it be better than what he wrote. <laughs> and, I, and uh, you know, while he's, a, a, as you know, a, a consummate gentleman, uh, that's not something that really is, is, on the, is on the menu of possibilities. Nor now, did, you, did you get to do a walk and talk? You've done walk and talks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I go way back with him when I, first was out of college i formed a theater company in new york which is miraculously still there and thriving called the atlantic theater company and what we would our con was i was running it this is the late <laughs> 80s our con was we would find young new york writers who had a play we wanted um and we would bring them up we would go away to vermont for the summer to get the hell out of the lower east side when it was stinkiest and um we would invite them up for the summer and we'd do a reading of their play and try to con them into giving us the rights, you know, and, and our, you know, <laughs> whoever they were into, those particular people would be flirting with them in those days. And we would try to get them to allow us to do the play in New York. And one of these guys whose play I had read, an early, early play was this young fellow, Aaron Sorkin, and he came hmm. up 
<laughs> my timing was a little off there because he had already, as an usher at a Broadway theater, stuck his play, A Few Good Men, into of a notable producer's briefcase. Wow. Wow. No, he was working in the coat room, maybe. I don't know. And they had already decided they were going to pr produce uh, a few good men on Broadway. But he let us do a reading and he came up and was immense. And we all were crazy about him. And, um, and I, it turns out I was right. His dialogue was quite special. It's, it's now universally acknowledged. But then I think maybe the, the following summer when I was up in a particularly rough patch doing theater in Vermont, selling hair scrunchies on a cart in like the Santa Monica promenade of downtown Burlington, Vermont. <laughs> I got this call saying, Aaron would like you to come down and read for, you know, the lead of his play, A Few Good Men, which is so menschy because I didn't stand a chance of getting the lead of a Broadway show, but I ended up going back down, driving six hours to have callbacks um, over and over again. And then I finally got this call saying, it's not you. It's not going to mm. be you. It's going to be the wonderful Academy Award winner or nominee, Tom Hulse. And I was just heartbroken. And, um, and then I got a call saying that the actor playing what would become the Kevin Bacon role had dropped out. And so that there I was suddenly on Broadway wow. for the first time in this Aaron Sorkin play. So I've known him for years. I was such a fan of the West Wing and got a call to come play this FBI agent, Mike Casper. And they started adding me in some episodes. And sure enough, there I was doing a walking talk with the um, spectacular Bradley Whitford, who had replaced me as the Kevin Bacon part and then taken over the lead in A Few Good Men. It's um, Six Degrees of Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. And, um, and I had more fun. I loved being part of that show. I watched it again during COVID. It's such a great show. It is. It is. Yeah. So, um, what what was the lapse in in did, was there a lapse in years from when you were did the show with him on Broadway to the West Wing, or did you always keep in touch with him all those years? I kept in touch with him from time to time. I went to I went to his wedding. Um, I, I was we were friends. I, I adore him. And then, you know, life life happens. There was a moment. Oh, because he also this must have been. I don't know the timing of this. I believe this was perhaps before West Wing. Was Sports Night before West Wing? Sports Night came yes. after West after oh, West Wing, right? It did? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I mean, don't think I don't think so, but go ahead. I think it did. I think it came before. Okay. Because at the very end of that show, he didn't know it was at the end of the time, they wrote this he wrote this amazing guy, Calvin Traeger, who was this billionaire who was buying Sports Night. The network and Sports Night, mm -hmm. and he had a great line when they were really talking about canceling that great show. <clears throat> um, I had a line which was, if you, anybody who can't make money off Sports Night should get out of the money-making business, which was a beautiful dig at the network. Yeah. And I was like to come in and be part of that fantastic ensemble with Felicity Huffman and Josh Charles and, um, and Peter Krause, and they actually canceled it. Yeah, yeah, crazy. It was before. It totally yeah. was before. I just, I just Googled it. Let's make a jump. New Adventures of Old Christine. Mm -hmm. Criminally underrated. Mm. Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Uh, she, she actually won the Emmy for three different shows. This was one of them. Yeah. Uh, what, what makes her so good, so funny? I mean, there's, I mean, I feel like there's some people who are just touched by something different and i mean from the minute i saw her on seinfeld i went okay how how is she that 
appealing and that completely without ego. And, uh, and so when I got a call, I'd been really working as a screenwriter a lot for a minute. And I got this call saying, would you want to come read for this? They're, I don't know. They want you to read for this. And I, I just liked her so much immediately. And she's also, I mean, if, you know, like a great point guard, anybody who's in the room with her is going to score. Hmm. And I got that immediately reading with her. And, uh, and, um, I loved doing that show. They, they, you know, they cast me and I, I got to kind of have a comedy clinic every week watching her again. There was nothing they could throw at her that she wouldn't fearlessly go at that. I think a lot of other people would have been like, well, I can't be seen doing that. Right. And, and her timing and just, and the other people, Wanda Sykes and Hamish Linkletter, uh, Emily Rutherford, it's just, there was so many terrific actors in that show. Yeah, I, I actually know Carrie Lizer very well. So when that show came out, um, it, it actually, that was the show, because um, Emily, I worked on Ellen DeGeneres' second sitcom, yeah. and Emily played her sister. So then, right. and then she did The New Adventures of Old Christine. I saw those, and I had done a friend of mine who writes on Ted Lasso, terrific writer Bill Rubel, who... May have he also wrote on Sports Nights or West Wing? I'm going to get it messed up. He had worked on Will and Grace with Carrie Lizer and had brought me in to play Sean's boyfriend uh, for a couple of episodes, which I was like, okay, this four camera live audience sitcom is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and that's how I got called in for that thing is because of that connection. Carrie's yeah. amazing to yeah. me. Is belongs and in a kind of pantheon with Julie. And- and Carrie, you know, I did stand-up comedy in New York for years. So I met Carrie at the Comedy Cellar in the Village. She was a waitress. No. Yes. That's funny. <laughs> and then years later, I connected with her out in L.A. And she was a big-time writer. So it was Oh, that's cool. funny. I just was trying to set up a lunch with her because it's been too long. I'll, 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 I'll give her a shout-out from you. Great. Thank you. Okay, so let's make another jump. You're part of yeah. the MCU. I, by the way, I restrained myself. Uh, because I'm a huge Marvel fan, I restrain myself to the third thing we're we're talking about, uh, <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and you've done a bunch of these now, um, Iron Man and Thor and the Avengers. And I, this has got to be like one of the most coveted gigs there is, right? To be part of this MCU? Yeah, for good reason. I mean, they they really know what they're doing. They really get... They really get, and I, you know, it was amazing to be there from the very beginning and watch how this world evolved under the, under the auspices of, you know, Kevin Feige and Lou Esposito and, uh, you know, also Favreau and Joss and Kenneth Branagh, the, the, the mix of kind of really intense drama and action and also really funny stuff. Yeah. And, um, uh, I was very lucky to, to have this small part that, you know, if you ever do those kind of smaller supporting roles, you always sit or sitting there having a snack going, man, what if they, what if they, what if they gave this guy some more scenes? And what if they, what if they put him in the next movie too? Yeah. And they're like, Hey, yo, give your suit back. And you're like, okay. Um, so that just was one of those bizarre dreams come true. Cause I had, I had loved that stuff as a kid and I was just kind of pinching myself throughout. So your character, um, he was resurrected a couple of times, right? Um, yeah, he was, he was, he was astoundingly dead at the end of the Avengers, Avengers. And I, uh, 
you know, they knew what they were doing to me and that I was, they were killing me out of the greatest franchise in history. <laughs> and um, I remember this terrific Marvel exec, Jeremy Latcham, brought me over. He said, look, I know this is a hard day. The day I was bleeding out with Nick Fury. He said, but I'm going to make this a little better for you. And he showed me a, an iPad that had a kind of pre-visualization of Loki getting smashed like a rag doll by the Hulk. <laughs> I was the first person to see that. And it did take a little bit of the sting off it. And then, you know, then I went about my merry way because they were very clear. I was like going, you know, do you guys want to do a version where he's kind of wounded? And they were like, no, no, this is very important. He's, he's super dead. But then, you know, because of all the things that are happening now and maybe contributing to a strike, there is the cinematic world. There is the streaming television, many worlds. Um, the multiverse. The, the true multiverse is taking place in media right now. And they said, uh, we, we think you might not be so dead. We would like you to meet some people here at Disney ABC. And um, so I did seven seasons uh, of Phil Coulson. And in that case, definitely by the end of it in the multiverse that we got into there, he was killed a number of times. <laughs> well, that's great because, you know, the chances are if you are a Marvel character, um, you will die a thousand deaths, but you will always come back. <laughs> that's what we'd like to think. Yeah. <laughs> So you uh, you are also a writer, a director. You directed the final two episodes of uh, Florida Man, which I want to get to. But I, I'm curious about this. How how difficult is it to direct yourself? In other words, you're the star and the director. You did this with a movie called uh, Trust Me. Yeah. Um, and I'm always amazed. Like I, I just I've done saw it a bunch of times. I directed myself in a couple episodes, scenes. You know, not the whole damn thing. That was a, a foolish idea. But the episodes of Agents of Shield, uh, I was in a, I was in both of the episodes of Florida Man that I directed. Uh, it's interesting. It's not my favorite. I would when I'm directing, I would really mostly prefer to really focus on that. But then there is also I've realized there's something strangely freeing. It's it's almost like it cuts out the ultimate middleman, and I. I depend on directors, but there's something about literally directing yourself from the inside. I can watch and see what's going on. They'll give me playback, but there's something about really just completely going into an organic trust of what you feel is happening. As long as you're really clear with the DP on what you want to get in the shot, that's also weirdly empowering editing yourself is not for the faint of heart. Hmm. And you get to see every stupid choice, every weird wrinkle, any, uh, yeah. Those days, those <laughs> days can really take a few years off your life. So I was curious of what Steve just asked you as far as directing yourself. And I, my question was going to be, you know, you, you do have that uh, opportunity and you were saying, you know, I don't know if it's a selfishness, but you have that opportunity to do what you want to do because you're the director. Um, so with that in mind, um, are you more open-minded with, um, actors to allow them to kind of do more with, with, with their characters? Um, I'm very curious what the actors I work with would say. I mean, I think, I think I honestly, I go both ways. On one hand, I'm really, I'm thrilled. I worked a lot with a, a, an old friend of mine, Sam Rockwell. And the thing about Sam is he shows up with more cool ideas and more props. And I didn't see any of them coming. And um, it's just, it's just a uh, lucky me. Um, and at the same time, I, I really know what I want. I really have an aesthetic that I like that I think 
for the project. And I definitely get caught sometimes really being very specific in terms of where I want them looking. And, you know, some actors really like that. And they really also, I think I try to create an atmosphere where they can push back and say, I don't want to look there. I think it should be here. And then there's the old saw that everyone says, it's like, great, I've got one like that. Will you do one? (laughs) You know, we'll choose them later. Right, right. Um, Okay, this is kind of a personal question. So uh, you moved around a lot as a kid because your dad was uh, an Episcopal priest. Yes. Um, And we've had a couple of guests lately that had that kind of background, um, moving around a lot. Matthew Berry from NBC uh, was on. He said it made him feel awkward and kind of isolated. Jake Busey was on the other day. He went from set to set with his dad, and he says it made him more outgoing, made him more comfortable in new situations. How did it play with you? That's a great question. I love Jake. He did some of our show. I think it did both. Uh, uh, I, I might have been visiting someone in the therapy community at some point not too long ago, and she said, oh, you're an introverted extrovert. Hmm. And I was like, oh, well, well, let's slow this down. That's a thing? She said, yeah, that's someone who's like learned how to be very comfortable in social situations or at least to appear so, but inside they can be experiencing something very different. And sometimes they really need to, you know, recharge in solitude the way an introvert does. And a lot of times people will presume about them that they have all the traits of an extrovert, but there's a different component there. And for me, that's been really meaningful because you do, you hit a lot of towns. My dad, uh, was a professor at different college towns. So uh, I got used to, you know, getting to know people quickly, but I also felt the other thing where I kind of felt, oh God, I just got to start over with these people. Yeah. (laughs) Does it make you a better actor? I don't know, but I certainly know that it's, when you listen to actor interviews, which I do sometimes, it's certainly something that comes up a lot. There's a lot of military, uh, and peripatetic people uh, backgrounds when you talk to actors. So it must be both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just go back real quick um, for a second. Cause I, I, I really wanted to uh, point this out when I, when you, the, the whole directing with certain choices that, um, that actors make, I always, I'm keenly, keenly focused on a lot of the business that actors do. And I always wonder, um, did they come up with this or was this something that they were told to do? And there were a couple of things that, that I noticed, um, watching Florida Man, which I, I loved. And, uh, there was a little business that one of the actors did where he, um, it was one of the detectives and he was cleaning his tie with like a tied pen. And it was in, it was in the sixth episode that you directed. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting choice. Okay. That I'm he like had a stain wrong. on his tie. And he cleaned it with a Tide pen. I believe, well, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure when I, because I directed that episode, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that was in the script, hmm. ah. which is rare, that level of detail. But this terrific writer, Don Todd, had been writing on different shows for years, and he wrote, you know, this series, uh, this series, uh, which was really interesting, incredibly I don't know what, sophisticated, funny, noir. Mm-hmm. And it had tied to so many threads together, but the level of character detail in it was striking to me. And my memory is that that was in that 
and that it was a terrific detail. Yes. And there was one other moment that I thought was a great, great detail where they were sitting in um, uh, Mike's uh, sister's house. And this was when, um, what's his name? Uh, Emery, the actor Emery. Yeah, what's, Emery Cohen. Emery Cohen, who was so, oh, everybody's so wonderfully cast in this. Yeah. He was such a, such a douchey guy, but he was so, so great. So lovable as, at the same time. Uh, just a, lo- a lovable douche. I mean, he was just yeah. so, so perfect. And, and uh, they, everybody, uh, they were passing uh, ears of corn around the table, and he grabbed the corn with his hand. There were tongs on the plate, and he he was the only one who grabbed it with his hand. And then it gets to Mike, and he picked it up with tongs. And I thought, what a great detail as far as the disparity of who these two characters were. Yeah, and that's that's a really beautiful observation. That was purely those actors. Mm-hmm. knowing and it's you know it's one of the there's some there's some things that are frightening about directing six and seven because that's the two finale episodes and they're running out of time and running out of money and it's yet it's getting bigger and bigger but the great part of it is these actors have gotten to spend a few months playing these people and they've really dialed in who they are and those kind of details you see them at the monitor and you go oh I'm going to say that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> so Florida man, uh, my understanding is that like all these sort of intertwined, so you're the law enforcement guy who can't get a gun. Everybody's got sort of this <laughs> weird and, but it's very Florida. Like what, why does this stuff happen in Florida? What is it about Florida? It's a really good question. Don Todd, the, the creator, he grew up around Orlando and left. And so this is, this is all kind of the world that he'd been holding on to and a story he'd been wanting to tell. I, when I was doing some of the interviews about it, I found myself talking to some radio stations in Orlando and maybe Miami, and they had the same question. Why does everyone think this about Florida? And I had just Googled Florida man because I wanted to see who one of the, um, one of the, one of the creative people were. Um, to get their name right. And when I Googled Florida man, what came up immediately was that some guy had put, had been arrested for assaulting his wife with chicken wings by throwing them at her until she had to be taken to the hospital. I was like, man, don't blame us. Don't be this headline every day. You know, whenever I hear a weird story, I just go on the assumption that it was Florida. Well, it was already a big meme. Apparently beforehand, Florida man. Yeah. You know, yeah so you you directed episodes six and episode seven the the big finale episodes um does does being an actor make you a better director and does having been in the show make you a better director that's a really good question too um you guys should have a podcast um (laughs) i think in in theory i i think there's things that being an actor really helps you with. You, there's ways that you understand what an actor's process might be, even though a lot of times it's very different from your own. There are ways you can kind of support them and nudge them and really get what they're coming from. And there's ways you can know what you would, how you would like to be, manip- um, I almost said manipulated, but motivated is probably the, the truer term. But there's also ways where, you know, there are people I've worked with who are directors who had been editors or DPs, and they have a much 
they have an access to a cinematic language that takes actor, or in my case, I started out as a screenwriter director almost more, that it takes us longer to kind of get a handle on. Um, so I was in the show first. There's another project that I've been writing that I'm, that I have there with that wonderful company aggregate run by Michael Costigan and Jason Bateman. Um, and this role came up and they, they cast me in it. And uh, it was an amazing thing to watch a first season Netflix show. It's something that I'm kind of trying to do myself. And, um, and they lost a director. Mm. Uh, they lost the director because I believe of a family emergency. And I, I think that in a way, partly because they felt like I had been there and seen the tone and knew the crew that it, it would give me a little bit of a, an advantage in terms of jumping in very quickly and taking over these fat last two episodes. So what's, what's it like stepping into, um, the sixth and seventh episode of a season after directors, after the directors that preceded you? Like, what what is it what does it take to put your stamp on a show that has been established and is you know and has been directed a certain way yeah, how, how right, do you make yeah. it your own well in a way you you your impulse is to put your stamp on it you know how can i make this really be my own because you know as whether it's an actor or writer you the only way you know how to make work that feels like it's your best is to let it feel very authentically from you but when you're stepping into a show, a lot of times directing a television show, you, that's really not what they're paying you for. They want your ideas and they want the ways that you might more kind of fully fulfill their tone, the, the version of their show that works. And you come into season 11 of, I don't know what, CSI or something, they really are clear and the crew's really clear. This is how we do this. This is how we cover this. Um, we'll let you kind of chip in an idea or two here or there, but our, your job is to kind of work within that. Um, this is different. This is the first season. So there was a few things I could look at, but they hadn't really been assembled in any final way. So I couldn't even see an episode of the show. And in fact, after we finished it 14 months ago or 15 months ago, there's a whole process of trying to then figure out this was always considered a tonally tricky show because some moments are very absurd and funny and others are very heavy kind of noir drama. They, um, you have to kind of figure out, you're kind of hoping that either whether it's Don Todd or Michael, the producer or Roxy, the other producer, Roxy Rodriguez, um, that they're going to let you know if you've gone, if you're making a whole different show and you're going to sync this baby for him at the end. Um, it's, a, it's a giant trust exercise. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, the, uh, the show is, is great. It's called Florida man. All seven episodes are now streaming on Netflix. Clark, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks man. so we much really for appreciate having it. Me. Thank you. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks Clark. There he is. He's been in most everything. I think. He's, he's, he's been in, I, no, I was ahead. hitting just highlights, things that I like, but I mean, everything. And when you say everything, he was actually in a temple that I used to go to uh, uh, during Yom Kippur. I used to see him at temple um, two years in a row. And the coolest thing about this temple, yes, the, the cantor, not the rabbi, the cantor yeah. at the temple okay. is a showtime uh, executive. His name is Gary Levine. Wow. 
that's his that's his side gig being a cantor. That's hilarious. And and he was uh, when I would my first writing job was on Brotherly Love, which was a WB show. He was an executive, and then and so I worked with him. Yeah. And then I go to this temple like twenty something years later, with uh, you know my girlfriend Nicole, who you met at my party. Oh who yeah, was my, Nicole. Who, who was my writing partner? Yeah. And I look up on the stage, and I'm like. Is that Gary Levine, the cantor? <laughs> no. So I used, to, I used to see Clark there. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, great guy. Great guy. And it's a really good show, Florida Man. It's streaming on Netflix. Uh, thanks to Clark. And uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast. Please do on Apple, Spotify. You can uh, catch it all at stevemason.com. It'll lead you to the right place. Don't forget, leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much, Sue. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Podcast.